Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. So I want to speak a message this morning called Untouchable. So if you've got your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Untouchable. For, for me, with One by One, it, it all started with one little girl. Um, my life was changed after encountering this little girl. Her name was Felicity. And she simply didn't have any shoes. And um, I remember buying her a pair of flip-flops that literally cost me 50 pence. And I gave her the flip-flops, these little pink flip-flops. And I said to her, come back tonight. We were doing a mass gospel campaign at the time. I was working with Evangelist Nathan, who I think's... Well, he's from this church, in fact. I was going to say, I think he's visited this church. He attended this church when he was first saved. Um, but I was working for him at the time. And I'd bought her these shoes and said, okay, come back tonight and we'll take you with us to the gospel campaign. And you can see and hear all about this Jesus I've been telling you about. And we stood outside the hotel and Felicity come running towards me and she's got her new flip-flops on and she's all excited. And she said, should I wait in your hotel room for you? I said, no, honey, we're literally getting in the cars right now. You can travel with us. That's fine. She was a street kid. So, you know, I said, just come with us. It's not a problem. We'll take you with us. And she said, yes, but shouldn't I remain in the hotel for you? Now, if she'd have asked my husband that, I would have known immediately what she was asking but she was nine years old and looking at another, I was in my twenties at the time. And she said again, a third time, should I wait in your hotel bedroom? And so I asked her and sure enough, she thought I'd spent 50 pence on her so that I could have her body and she was willing to give it. And in a moment like that, I'd already been carrying a dream and a promise of a children's home for a long time. God gave me the, the promise when I was just a teenager, but stood looking at this little girl, looking this girl in the eyes who thought she was just worth 50 pence. That did something on the inside of me. I was angry, not at Felicity, but that as a street kid, she was so used to being abused by both men and women that her mind went there for 50 pence. And looking that little girl in the eyes that day, I made a promise to God and a promise to myself that even if it's only ever for one child... I'll give my life for this. Even if it's only one kid that I can ever help, that's worth giving my life for. And looking that little girl in the eyes that night, I made a promise to God of, God, you've got to use me. Even if it's only ever one child, you've got to use me. Felicity gave her heart to Christ that night. But I don't know what happened to her ever since. But every time I take a new kid into one of our homes, it's like I'm taking in Felicity again and again. You see, so many times we're overwhelmed, there's so much need that you don't always know where to start with. I describe it like there's an ocean of need in front of me and I've got a teaspoon in my hand and I'm attempting to empty an ocean of need using just a teaspoon and sometimes it can seem pathetic. Sometimes it can feel like, well, God, you know, this is, this is not changing the world. What, am, what is this? What is this that I'm doing? But if we're just faithful with that teaspoon... If we're just faithful with what we can do at where we're at, God will use us and he will multiply your little teaspoon. And we've seen that God do that again and again with one by one. And so I want to look at a message. Thank you. 
I want to look at um, a portion of scripture where we see Christ do that. And it's Luke 7 and verse 11. I'm going to read from verse 11 through to verse 17. It says, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin that they were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So many times in scripture, we see Jesus stop for one life. Now, Jesus basically has a three-year window of the point of starting his ministry up to the point of of dying for us. A three-year window. And so many times I think if that was me, I'd have gone to the tallest, highest place, the most filled area to try and reach the most people that I possibly can in my little window of life. But yet Christ so many times stops for one. He stopped for the woman at the well in John 4. She's the wrong gender, living the wrong lifestyle, the wrong community for Jesus to stop and talk to. But he cuts through all the red tape and meets her. We see it again in Luke 8, the woman with the issue of blood. For 12 years, this woman has had this disease of of, of issue of, of blood. And for 12 years, her identity has been the woman with the issue of blood. We all know her as the woman with the issue of blood. We don't even know her name She's the woman with the issue of blood. And she comes and she comes to Jesus quite secretively. She tries to make her way through the crowd. You see, realistically, she shouldn't be in a public open place like that. And she comes and she makes her way through the crowd and she just grabs a hold of the hem of his garment. Now, Jesus at this moment in time is on his way to Jairus's house. Jairus is a synagogue ruler, very important man, a lot of influence, very wealthy And his own little girl is dying. His own little girl just so happens also to be 12 years old. You see, for 12 years, Jairus has had joy. For 12 years, this woman's had pain and sorrow. And Jairus comes publicly to Jesus. Come and help my daughter. Come come with me. This woman comes secretly. She manages to make her way through the crowd and just touches his garment. You see, she can't stop an important man like Jesus. He's on important business and, well, she's just not worthy of that. And so she just thinks, if I can just touch the garment, then I'll be healed. But Jesus stops. I'm always intrigued by that. You see, from the point of her touching the garment, she's already been healed. So why does Jesus stop when he's on his way to a very urgent matter? You see, this woman's got an issue of blood, but, well, she's not dying from it. The little girl he's on his way to heal is dying. That's way more important. If I'd have been a disciple, I'd have been like, come on, Jesus. I need to get a jog on here. What are you stopping for? She's already healed. Let's move it along, please. But Jesus stops. He stops the whole crowd, including Jairus. Imagine if you're Jairus. Imagine if you're the woman with the issue of blood and Jesus has just stopped a whole crowd, including a very important man to stop and talk to you. All eyes suddenly on you. You spent 12 years in hiding 
and now all eyes are on you. And Jesus stops and he calls her daughter. Nowhere else in the whole of scripture does Jesus call anybody else daughter. Only this one woman. You see, Jesus that day was doing far more than a physical healing. That woman's identity had been wrapped up in her sickness. And suddenly Jesus comes and redefines her, calls her daughter. Now all of a sudden, message comes through the crowd that Jairus' daughter's died. Imagine the awkwardness of that moment. Well, Jesus, if you'd have just not slowed down, Jesus, if you'd have just kept going, all eyes suddenly on this woman of, well, if you'd have just not stopped him as he's on his way to Jairus' daughter, if you'd have just let him crack on with business, you're not important enough to slow this down. Imagine how she felt. Imagine how Jairus felt. But what I find intriguing is that Jesus does go on and he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. But guess what? He does that privately. For the woman, he publicly heals her. He publicly changes her identity. But the important man with lots of wealth, well, he does that privately. So many times we can think we're not enough. We're not important enough for God to meet. You know, there's someone always better, more important, more significant. Well, maybe God will use them. Maybe God will stop for them. But, well, for little old me. And God wants to stop for your need this morning. He wants to stop and love on you this morning and redefine your identity this morning. And I see him so many times stop for one. And we see it again in Luke 7. This widow, her only son, her only hope, sorry, is her son. And here he is laying dead. All hope gone. All hope for the future. How is she going to live? How is she going to survive? How is she going to feed herself? Her only hope was in her boy because she's already lost her husband. All her hope lay in this son. And here he is lying dead on a stretcher. And what I find intriguing is Jesus comes and he touches the coffin. Now, a coffin in those days wouldn't be like what our coffins are. It would have been more like a stretcher. And they were bringing him through and he wasn't going to some big burial site. It would have probably been a communal grave like you read about in Jeremiah. She's a poor woman. And Jesus comes and he touches the coffin. And it says that the bearers stood still. You see, if you don't understand Jewish custom, you read on past that and don't think much about it. But Jesus was a Jew. And in Jewish custom, the fact that he's just touched something unclean has made him now unclean for the next seven days. He's just touched that coffin, and in doing so, he's now unclean for the next seven days. The coffin bearers are probably thinking, who is this guy? Like, we've got to hold the coffin. We've got to bring it through. But why has he chosen to do that? Why would he touch it? Why didn't he just speak into the situation? Why does he come and touch the situation? That, that's untouchable. You should not be touching that. What are you doing, Christ? Why aren't you just rebuking the situation? Why aren't you just commanding the boy to come to life. Why touch it and cause yourself such great inconvenience? That for me was what leapt off the page. You see, Jesus so many times came and touched my inconvenience. Jesus came into my life when I was broken and he touched me. You see, he's not a God who sits aloof away from mankind. He doesn't sit up on his holy lofty towers looking down, but he sent his own to come and walk amongst us. He sent his own to come and die for us. He reaches out and touches our untouchable. He reaches our situations that are messy, that are unclean. He reaches out and touches us when it's not convenient. 
It's not convenient to die. It's not convenient to leave the throne in heaven and come down and live as a man. How humbling for God himself to come in human form. The very thing he's created out of dust, he's then willing for his own son to come and be born in that way. That's not convenient. That's not ideal. But he came and did it because he wanted to touch my mess. Jesus comes and he, he reaches out and touches our life. 11 years ago, um, I was asked to go and preach in a brothel. I was in Nigeria at the time, and I was asked to go and preach in a brothel. Now, 11 years ago, let me put this in perspective, 11 years ago, you would have never seen me on a mic, ever. I remember the first time my mum and dad came home and said, um, I've got two older sisters, the youngest of three, and they came home and they said, oh, next Sunday you're going to be singing at church. You're going to sing a trio at church. I ran upstairs crying. I was like, no, no, that is not happening. I am not singing on a microphone in front of lots of people. That is not happening. I also remember the very first time a man named Cleddy Keith looked. It was a crowded room. Cleddy had been prophesying over all these people, and it was really exciting and really amazing. And then he looks out in the crowd, and at this point, I'm engaged to my husband, Matthew. Cleddy doesn't even know my name at this point, and he looks through the crowd, and he says, fiancé. Got is a deep Texan. Fiance, come here. So I'm all excited. I'm thinking I'm going to get a prophetic word. This is amazing. Like, I'm in. I'm up. I went up and all the, the room is packed out. There's literally people stood all along the back at Wath. And uh, I go out waiting for this really exciting prophetic word. And he just stands there and he says, preach. <laughs> and passes me the mic. I was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. I don't do that. I, I, I like... I have nothing to say. Mm -mm. And I looked at him and I said these words in a very pathetic little voice. Can I sing instead? Because at that point, I've now got used to singing. I can do that. Can I sing instead? And he looked at me and he was like, no. If you've got a testimony, you can preach. Now preach. It was the shortest sermon in the world's history. I think it was consisted of about 2.5 seconds. Um, Literally, just the panic went all over me as I'm thinking I'm going to get a great prophetic word. No. Um, But I just, I didn't preach. And so I'm stood there and this Nigerian lady says, you're going to preach in the brothel. Well, I don't preach. Secondly, you'd be delighted to know, I've never been in a brothel in my life. Like, I'm a church girl. Like, how can I go and preach in a brothel? I have no idea what to expect. And so with every strength within me, I mustered up the strength to say, no, no. And being a typical Nigerian mama, she looked at me and said, yes, I speak to the king in you and not the fool. You will preach. (laughs) The only thing going through my head is she just called me a fool. (laughs) So I complied, as you do when a Nigerian mama tells you what to do, you comply. Let me tell you, wisdom, if a Nigerian mama tells you to do something, you do it. (laughs) Come on now. Amen. Preach it, sister. So I go into this brothel, and it's a bar area with all the bedrooms adjoining. Um, This is a whole new concept. I don't go into bars, let alone brothels. But I'm stood in this brothel, and I'd prepared myself with this message for the girls. You see, my heart is very much, injustice is something that just... Oh, it just, I can't handle it. I I don't process it very well. And so I get quite, quite strong when it comes to injustice. And um, 
For me, these girls, it was an unjust situation. They'd found themselves in a lifestyle where they're now trapped in this brothel mentality. And I'd gone prepared for that, prepared to tell them how much Christ loves them, how much he longs for them to walk in freedom, that they don't have to remain in this lifestyle, but God's got so much more for them. And I was prepared and ready for that. So I'm stood in this bar in the brothel. And on this side was all the girls. I'm ready for that. I'm good to go. I've got my nice, neat little message. I'm ready to preach Jesus to these girls. What I wasn't ready for was that on this side of the bar were all the men who were waiting for me to shut up so that they could carry on with business as usual. And I'm stood preaching about the grace and the mercy and the love of Christ. And I'm, I'm stood looking at these girls, but the whole time I'm getting so angry inside at these men. And I'm sorry that I'm, I'm blaming all you guys, but just go with me. I'm getting more and more angry at this side of the room and I'm preaching Christ. And all of a sudden I found that I began to change my body language. And before I knew it, I'm stood like this. I'm stood preaching to the girls. I quite literally had my back to the men. I quite literally, I quite literally was happy for them to go to hell. And I don't say that in a wrong way. I quite literally did. You see, I was so angry at the injustice taking place. But I'm stood there preaching about the grace and the mercy that I didn't deserve. And in, in my heart, I've just sent a whole side of a room to hell. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit has this amazing ability to just put his finger right on the spot when you need it. He's got this amazing way of just humbling you. And the Holy Spirit just whispered, didn't I die for them too? You see, my own self-righteousness I determined who was worthy of being touched, who was worthy of reaching out and and, and receiving Christ. But I decided this side of the room didn't deserve Jesus. What a hypocrite. And I stood there and I saw my own heart exposed for what it really was. Stood in all my pride, in my self-righteousness. And I didn't even see it through the veil of my own perfectionism. I didn't see what Christ wanted to do in that room. I remember as he said that, it was one of those moments where you just want the ground to open up and swallow you. It was one of those moments where Jesus, if you want to come back right now at this very second, that would be great. Um, Except he did not. And um, I just began to turn. The second the Holy Spirit said that, I began to turn my body language. I began to change my posture. But what I was really doing was changing my heart posture. What's the posture of your heart today? You see, we all want to reach out and be the hands and feet of Jesus. But sometimes without even realizing it, we've determined who we want to reach and who actually somebody else can deal with that. Well, Lord, you know, I'll reach this neighbor, this neighbor, you know, there's a natural clique. I get on well with them. So I'll reach them. But actually this part of the road, well, someone else can deal with them because they're not really my kind of people. Different culture. Don't really want to reach out and touch them. And God has this ability of just putting your hand on your heart and changing your heart posture. That day as I began to change and share the gospel with the whole room, to my surprise, not only did some of the girls receive Christ, but some of the men did too. One man in particular came up to me at the end and he said, I'm, I'm a, a, a Muslim man. I've never been in a brothel in my life. I don't agree with them. I, I, I think it's wrong. 
I, I don't live that kind of a life. He said, but today as I was walking past the brothel, something just drew me in and I didn't know why I don't like these places. Now I know I need Jesus. And I just suddenly realized in that moment, if I'd have carried on judging those men, would he have come to know Christ that day? Or would he have just seen some British girl who thinks she's got it all together? What's our heart posture? Are we willing to reach out and touch the untouchable like Christ did for us? So many times Jesus reached out. He says to the widow, don't cry. Everyone stops and staring at Jesus. He's the only one that stood in between her and her hopelessness. He still does that today. You know, sometimes we go through hopeless situations. I remember in in Kenya, leading a witch doctor to Christ and thinking, this is how God's going to save our village. You know, save the witch doctor and you've just changed a community. And I'm I'm like, hallelujah, Jesus, this is how my whole village is going to get saved now in Kenya. Only for literally weeks later, him to turn back like a a dog to its vomit, going back to witchcraft, going back to everything he knew before. And that wasn't how the scenario should have unfolded. That, that's not how I prayed it to go. My husband, being given three hours left to live, well, that shouldn't have happened. Why does that happen? My dad diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and he was only middle-aged at the time. To walk in a room with a man who means everything to you, a man who shaped and formed your young years, my dad passionately loved the word of God, passionately. It was infectious to be around. You couldn't not have a respect for the word of God growing up in my dad's home. He passionately loved Jesus and passionately loved the word. And to walk in a room where someone who means the world to you no longer has a clue who you are, I was painful. I felt hopeless. He's now with Jesus. He's now with the one who he loves very much. And I'm I'm thankful for that because he's now more in his right mind than he's ever been. He's with the one whom his soul really loved. But as his daughter, that felt hopeless. But every single time I've gone through a hopeless situation, God's reached right in and touched my untouchable. He's reached right into my messy situations and touched me through every circumstance, even when it didn't turn out how I thought it should. Even when it didn't unfold the way I prayed for it to go, it was a hopeless situation. But he reached out and touched me right in the middle of that. I think of the men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And these men are men who love Jesus. Two men who thought he was the one. It says that they thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one. And they're walking this Emmaus journey, a seven-mile journey, talking about how terrible things have turned out. We'd hoped he was the one that was going to restore Israel, but he's dead. Long gone is that hope and dream. And Jesus comes and he starts to walk the road with them. And they're so blinded by disappointment. They're so blinded by despair because it didn't turn out how they hoped it would that they don't even recognize it's him. Sometimes we're so full of disappointment that we can't see him. But whether we see him or not, he's right there. He walks that road with them, even though they couldn't see him. In your hopelessness, 
he's right there. Whether you see him or not, he's right there. He begins to unfold the scripture. If you're in a hopeless situation, let me tell you, your answer is right here. This contains everything you need for every single situation. And Christ himself begins to point these men back to the scriptures. Didn't it say right back from the days of Moses that he must go through this? And he begins to unfold it. And they say that beautiful verse where it says, didn't our hearts burn within us while he spoke? We get this in it. It begins to burn in your heart, even in the midst of hopelessness, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of Emmaus Road. We all go through Emmaus Road moments at some point along our journey. But if we'll have this in our hearts, our hearts continue to burn and not become so full of disappointment. So Jesus walks the journey with them and it reaches the point where it's, it's time for them to stop. They've reached their destination and Jesus pretends like he's going to keep on walking. And they urge him, won't you stay with us? Won't you, won't you dine with me tonight, Christ? Won't you dine? They didn't say Christ, they didn't know it was him. Won't you dine with me? Won't you come in and stay with us? And so Christ obliges. There's something about hunger. There's something about Jesus, I don't want to go on without you. Jesus, I don't want to carry on this journey if you're not with me. There's something about hunger after him that just blesses and delights his heart. Even in the midst of disappointments, even in the midst of despair, if we'll yearn for him, for his presence, for his touch in our life, he comes right in and he went in and he dined with them. And at the point of breaking the bread, their eyes were suddenly opened and realized this is Christ. Hope is restored. Christ's so good at restoring hope. When we first went out to Pakistan, um, we'd only gone for a dignity project. I remember telling my mum, my mum's uh, a worrier. Like, if, if there can be a worst case scenario, my mum will go there. And um, I, I think by result, I am almost too laid back. Um, we're, we're polar opposites from that point of view. And so I remember saying to my mum, don't worry, I'm, gonna, I'm there for four days. I'm going to get in, I'm going to reach these girls with the Dignity Project, and then I'm going to be back home in Utoxeter. Do you know what makes the headlines in Utoxeter? We had plant pots kicked over in the park. That genuinely made the news. Genuinely. Plant pots kicked over. I'm like, hallelujah, Jesus, where in the world are we living? It is the safest place to raise a child. We have plant pots kicked over. My goodness. So I'm like, mum, don't worry. I'm in Pakistan for a few days, and then I'm going back to Utoxter, where everything's safe and lovely. And um, she was like, okay, okay. Well, on my final day in Pakistan was when they took me into the brick factory. And the guys we were working with had been telling us all week about these brick factories, but once you see it... <laughs> You can never unsee it. Once you've walked in a factory and met children who are slaves, you can't just switch off that. You never forget that. And I remember walking through this brick factory for the first time, just, I could barely speak. It was just, I, I couldn't believe that in 2000, it was 2018 at the time, but I couldn't believe that in 2018, I was witnessing children be slaves. I, I, anyone being a slave but a child. And so I remember coming up to this family and saying, you know, why, why are you here? Basically 13 years ago, they were a young married couple and life was happy. Everything was wonderful. And she became pregnant with their first child. And that lovely, exciting period where you go from being a couple to becoming a family, that beautiful transition, it's all exciting. It's all wonderful. 
Except she goes into labour and there's complications and she knows she needs an emergency C-section. The problem was they were a very poor couple. The husband knew if he went to the bank, they would probably be denied a loan. But even if not, it would take weeks to go through, by which time his wife's in a critical condition. So he does the only thing he knows how in order to save his wife and his unborn child. He takes a loan of $150 to pay for surgery. That's all it was, $150. Pays for the surgery, all goes well, the baby's healthy, the mum's fine, all is well. Except 13 years later, I'm stood looking at a couple. Their then son's gone on to have another three children, so a family of six in total have worked in a brick factory for 13 years because of a loan of $150. I remember saying, well, how much do you owe? Like, surely you've paid it off by now. $150 in 13 years? Surely you've paid it off. And the husband said, no, we now owe $2,500. I said, why? How? He said, well, firstly, the interest rate is so high that we can never really pay it off. But secondly, if we don't make our quarter of bricks, if our four-year-old son doesn't make his quarter of bricks, we don't have enough money to eat that day and we have to put an extension on the loan. And to see children who literally don't have a childhood, no childhood whatsoever, did something you see, sometimes you'll see a need and it just demands a response. Just, you might not be able to change the whole world. Guess what? We can't. He did. But if we will just do our part in the Great Commission, it's like a fishing net. Only takes one all in that net for the fish to slip through. But if, if each of every single one of us would just fulfill our part of the Great Commission, then together, as a church, we are that net that together, it's not about one person, it's not about being on TBN, but it's everyone, everyone doing their part in the Great Commission, everyone working together in unity, that we can see this world transformed one life at a time. And for us taking those children into the home, you know, we've only got 32 kids now in the home. And for every child we've got in, there's thousands who are still slaves. Even this time going back in the factory, I just, it does something to me. I can't, I can't, I can't process it. I can't, it just makes me crazy. I remember walking off, I just walked off by myself at one part because I, just, I couldn't do the filming. I couldn't, I couldn't do any of that stuff. I was useless in that moment. And I remember just walking off and seeing a little 18, 18 month old just um, use the bathroom on the floor. Because there is no bathroom in the brick factory. It, it does something on the inside of me. For every one that we've took in, there's thousands that are still slaves. But every single time we reach out, despite it feeling a little hopeless, every time we do that, he steps in. And he walks that Emmaus journey with me. He walks that road with me. He did it with the lady. Back to our, our beautiful widow. He comes back to her. In his unfathomable grace, and he reaches out and touches, quite literally touches her untouchable mess, her untouchable situation. And he says, get up. And he presents the boy back to his mother. Now, because he's Jesus, he's no longer unclean because he's no longer touched a dead body. So he's no longer unclean. But he reached out despite it. How many times have I not reached out because it feels inconvenient? Living in the West, 
Life is all about what's convenient, what's, what's quickest for your life, what's most comfortable. Let, let it, let's make you comfortable. Well, guess what? I hate to be the bearer of bad news, bad news, but serving Christ isn't about comfort. It really isn't. Take up your cross and follow me. It's not convenient. Going to Pakistan is not convenient for me. Kenya's different. Kenya, I love Kenya. Kenya feels like a second home to me. Come on. Buena sifiwe. Um, I love Kenya. I'd, I'd already made up my mind when the doctors told me Matt was going to die. I'd already made up my mind that me and Josiah would move out and live permanently in Kenya. That, that was literally my home. I love being there. I got back two days ago. It really is my second home. Um, Pakistan, not so much. Very different. It's not convenient. Trying to get a visa just to go in the nation was a nightmare. Matt gets a yes immediately. Another guy who came with us got a yes eventually. Pastor Phil got a yes. I was still no. Right up until 17 minutes before the embassy was due to close. 17 minutes. Like I've heard about God taking you down to the last hour, but come on. 17 minutes. I was full of faith that I will get this visa up until the final day. And I'm like, I'm not going to get this visa. I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to see my own home being opened. Oh, woe is me. The world is terrible. And 17 minutes before I finally got the visa. Um, But going there is not convenient. It's really not. It's not convenient to my life in the slightest. But guess what? I've seen those babies. I've seen hope restored in their lives. Children who were once slaves, now being children. We asked them what their favorite thing about the home was. And do you know what they said? Many of them, windows. They've never had a window in their home. They've lived in a brick shack. And they've never seen daylight coming through into a home before. They were excited about a window. One little boy was excited because he now has a bedtime routine. I need him to talk to my own son. That's a fight every single... He's eight tomorrow, and it's a fight to get him in bed every single day. You'd think we'd be used to it by now, but no, every single day we have the same fight. But this little boy in Pakistan was so excited because he'd never had a bedtime routine. He'd never been able to sleep through the night because his family in their brick factory had to get up at midnight every night and work through They worked from midnight right through to the morning. They paused for breakfast. Then they continued and built and carried on building bricks right up until noon. They then had a four-hour window where they slept while the sun was hottest. But then they would get back up again at four in the afternoon and work through till seven at night. Then he could sleep for a few more hours again before getting back up at midnight. And it all goes on again every single day, seven days a week, his whole life. For him to have a bedtime routine was just... It blew his mind. And to see hope being restored in these children, it's worth every single inconvenience possible. But how many times do we stop? How many times do we hold back from reaching out because it's inconvenient? If I told you by shaking your hand, you now have to remain in your home for seven days. You're unclean. You've got to stay in your home. You can't come out to church. You can't use the supermarket. You've got to just stay inside I think you would pause before shaking my hand. And I get it because I'd pause before shaking yours too. But if we will just be a people who determined, you know what, God, even if this is not comfortable, even when it's inconvenient, God will be a people who reach out. Then just like what happened in this scripture, we'll see people come to know him. You see, every time you reach out, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you your time, possibly your finances, maybe even your health. It's going to cost you. 
But by not reaching out will cost us far more in the long run. In the light of eternity, it costs far more by not reaching out. But in the scripture, it says that everyone who witnessed Christ do the miracle, they all stood in awe. It doesn't say the church people stood in awe. It said they all stood in awe and began to worship God and say, wow, there's a prophet in our village. You see, we turn from the book of Malachi in the, New, in the Old Testament to Matthew. We turn in the flick of a couple of pages. But for the people living in Nain, that was 400 years of silence. 400 years of no, no prophets, no revelation word from God, no tingles down the spine. 400 years of nothing. And then they suddenly witness Christ do a miracle and they say, wow, God is back. We live in a nation that don't recognize God. We live in a nation where they've not seen God move powerfully. They're blinded to God. They don't see him. But guess what? They see you. And maybe if we're willing to reach out, even when it's not inconvenient, even, even when it's an untouchable situation, when they see God's people reach out and touch that, maybe just maybe Cambridge will stop and say, wow, God's in our city. God's in this nation. God's come back. Why? Because people like me and you are willing to reach out and touch our community. We're willing to get on those streets and evangelize. It's not convenient. We're sometimes scared. I never have the right words to say. I'm just one of those people who, if you can put your foot in it, I'm there. I'll do it. I'll be the one with my size 10s on, foot straight in the hall. Never seem to have the right words. But when the Holy Spirit's flowing through us, you bet your bottom dollar, you've got the right words. Just in that moment when you're willing to step out, he'll give you the words to say. Even when you're afraid, even when it's not convenient, you'd rather be back home with your feet up watching something on the television. It's not convenient to be out on the streets, especially is it going to rain? Lord, you know, if it rains, I might just stay back because, well, I don't really, you know, I've got to straighten my hair. And yeah. Even when it's not convenient, if we would be a people willing to stretch out and touch an untouchable situation, God will move through us. And people will come back to him. I want to pray with you real quick. You see, Jesus that day was the only one stood between a widow and her hopelessness. He's the man that stands between the orphan and their fatherlessness. He's the man that continues to stand in between the sinner and their rottenness. Jesus still stands right in our midst, willing to touch our untouchable moments. Willing to touch our untouchable attitudes like that day with me in the brothel. Just a stinking, prideful attitude. And he reached out and he touched me. And this morning he longs to touch your untouchable situation. And this morning, for anyone who feels like they're on Emmaus Road. They're on a road and it just doesn't feel right. We can't see God in this. Why has it gone this way? I want to tell you today that Christ is walking with you on that journey. He's on the Emmaus Road with you today. Whether you see him or not, whether you see his hand in that moment or not, he's walking that road with you. And he still stands between you and your hopeless situation. But my challenge to this room is that we would be a people that are willing to reach out when it's not convenient. That we'd be a, a church and a group of people who, despite inconvenience, despite it not being comfortable, despite being so far away from our comfort zone that we feel awkward and we feel afraid, if we would be a people willing to touch an untouchable situation, God would powerfully move. 
Thank you for listening and we trust that the Word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org. If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless and goodbye.